Our first scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Ezekiel, chapter 37, verses 1 through 14. Now listen to and hear the word of God. The hand of the Lord came upon me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. He led me all around them. There were very many lying in the valley, and they were very dry. He said to me, mortal, can these bones live? I answered, O Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, prophesy to these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. I will lay sinews on you and will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I had been commanded and as I prophesied, suddenly there was a noise, a rattling and the bones came together bone to its bone. I looked, and there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, mortal, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe upon these slain, that they may live. I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived, and stood on their feet a vast multitude." Then he said to me, mortal, these bones are the whole house of Israel. They say our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are cut off completely. Therefore prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, I am going to open your graves and bring you up from the graves. O oh, my people, and I will bring you back to the land of Israel and you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and bring you up from your graves. O oh, my people. I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live, and I will place you on your own soil. Then you shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken and will act, says the Lord God. Here ends our first reading. Our second text is from the Gospel of Matthew, the 22nd chapter, verses 34 to 40. Continue to listen to God's word to you and to me. When the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which commandment in the law is the greatest? He said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I have a friend who has been uh, living with Parkinson's disease for over 20 years now. In 2005, we had a conversation where he shared a uh, life-changing medical device that was about a life-changing medical device uh, that was implanted in his body. This particular technology facilitates a deep brain stimulation, and it uses a pacemaker-like apparatus uh, that delivers the continuous electrical stimulation to specific areas of his brain that will combat 
the effects of Parkinson's. For my friend, this uh, device has not only improved his motor skills, but also significantly reduced tremors and enabled him to engage in uninterrupted conversation, albeit at a slower pace. During his explanation of how this particular device worked, I couldn't help but inquire, can you turn it off? He reached into his pocket and he pulled out what looked like to be a garage door opener. He put it to his chest, just right of his left shoulder, and he pressed a button. All of a sudden, he slumped into his chair. He was unable to move. His left hand and left arm trembled uncontrollably. He couldn't speak. He couldn't utter a single word. After a minute or so, he slowly raised the activator to that same spot on his chest. He pressed the button, and within 30 or 60 seconds, the tremors ceased. His speech returned, and he regained his motor skills. I just sat there gobsmacked, awestruck, at how this technology was supporting his quality of life. He saw the astonishment on my face and he said, Tony, I know, it's remarkable. And I said, it's nothing short of a miracle. Now imagine if I told you that same story, but instead of closing it the way that I just did, I said, I turned to my friend and said, you know what? That device is a sin. Or I said, the doctor who gave you that device, they're trying to play God. Or the engineers and neuroscientists that developed that technology are idolaters, lifting themselves and their capabilities above God. If I close the story in that way, how would you react? How would you react? It's highly unlikely that you would agree with such rhetoric or such conclusions. Most of you would consider those sentiments, if I change the end of the story, most of you would consider those sentiments to be unkind, unrealistic, and candidly unchristian. For most Christians would frame it much, much differently than that. They would emphasize perhaps that that device is part of God's plan to bring healing and wholeness to human beings. Or they might acknowledge that the doctors and the engineers and the scientists are fulfilling their God-ordained vocation to continue and carry out Christ's ministry of healing on earth. Some, like I said, would say it's like a modern-day miracle. As human beings, uh, we're prone uh, to suffering. We're susceptible to diseases, including cancers and other ailments. Most Christians would affirm that part of what it means to fulfill the second great commandment that Jesus has left us, to love our neighbor as ourselves, most of us would agree that part of that commission includes trying to alleviate people's suffering. It includes healing sickness. It includes curing 
disease just as Christ did in his earthly ministry. So advances in biotechnology and and bioengineering and gene augmentation and, and pharmaceuticals and medical devices have significantly improved both the quantity and quality of life for the human species in the 21st century. From deep brain stimulation to cochlear implants to medications for various conditions to glasses to IVF to vaccines to prosthetics, cancer treatments, just to name a few advancements. It's challenging, it would be very challenging, I think, to find someone who believes that these advancements and these therapies are antithetical to the ministry of Jesus. We'd be hard pressed to find someone who believed that these were antithetical to the ministry of Jesus or his call to love our neighbor as ourselves. We see this kind of work often, implicitly or explicitly, as a continuation of Christ's earthly ministry or as a way in which we love our neighbor as ourselves. In 1957, a philosopher and biologist Julian Huxley introduced the term transhumanism, which has since gained significant popularity as a philosophy and a worldview. Transhumanism uh, advocates for the use of current and emergent technologies to enhance human capabilities and to improve the human condition. Its vision encompasses a future where responsible application of these technologies could slow down, reverse, or even eliminate the aging process, leading to extended human lifespans and enhanced cognitive and sensory capacities. Transhumanists believe that individuals with augmented capabilities will evolve into a superior species often referred as post-humans. If you were with us two weeks ago, I mentioned the work of Yuval Noah Harari, who called this new species the Homo Deus, the human God, which embodies these aspirations for human immortality. It's important to note, I think, that the majority of present-day transhumanists identify as materialists and atheists, espousing secularism. Transhumanistic philosophies have, have raised concerns among many Christians. One Christian writing about it, calling it the most dangerous idea that we have around today. And there are at least two reasons why Christians have become concerned about some of this philosophy. First, transhumanism historically denies the existence of God, and to most Christians, that's pretty important. Secondly, it challenges core Christian doctrines related to human nature, sin, death, and salvation. I want to unpack some of this, what I would call orthodox theology, just to kind of level set where Christians have been when talking about death, what it means to be human, and what it means to be saved. And so I'm going to try to summarize uh, 2,000 years or so, easy task, of Christian theology to talk about some of these emerging themes that transhumanists are trying to address. So Christian theology historically has asserted that our rebellion against God, our original sin, and the desire to be godlike or to possess the intelligence of God, like I talked about last week, that these are the fundamental reasons why we are mortal. That in fact, according to our theological purview, our theological life, 
We are mortal because we disobeyed God. Mortality, says the scriptures, is the consequence of our disobedience to our creator. Christian theology also affirms that the human being consists of both a body and a soul. And due to our sin, as our theological rationale goes, the body will indeed inevitably face physical death, while the soul, the seed of the conscience, and enlivened by the very breath of God, is considered immortal. Orthodoxy teaches that through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we can receive eternal life as a gift of God's grace. The Apostle Paul succinctly summarized this theology in in one sentence in the book of Romans. He says, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. However, there's an aspect of, of, of Christian tradition, Christian theology, that, that kind of flies below the radar for most contemporary Christians. It's what uh, New Testament scholar Tom Wright calls life after life after death. Life after life after death. One of our Presbyterian creeds uh, from our book of confessions, it's called the Westminster Confession of Faith. It was written all the way back in 1647. It describes life after life after death like this. Human bodies after death return to dust and see corruption, but their souls, which neither die nor sleep, having an immortal subsistence, immediately return to God, either waiting for the full redemption of their bodies or cast into hell. At the last day, in other words, at the end of history, such as are found alive shall not die, but be changed, and all the dead shall be raised up with the self-same bodies and none other, although with different qualities, which shall be united again to their souls forever. One of the most important pieces of scripture that undergirds this confession comes from the Apostle Paul in his letter to the first, his letter to the Corinthians, the first letter to the Corinthians, the 15th chapter. This is what Paul says. Listen to the continuity here. We will all be changed, says Paul, in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. For this perishable body must put on imperishability and this mortal body must put on immortality. When this perishable body puts on imperishability and this mortal body puts on immortality, then the saying that is written will be fulfilled. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? So here, in summary is what Christians have confessed for about 2,000 years. Christian theology suggests that the consequence of sin is physical suffering and death. Our bodies perish from dust we have come and to dust we shall return. Our soul, which is immortal, returns to God and in a mysterious way remains with God until Christ's second coming which will mark the end of history and mark the full establishment of the kingdom of God forever. And here's the punchline. The dead will receive new bodies. I know a lot of you are thinking, good, I'm glad they're new. (laughs) New bodies, imperishable, incorruptible, 
eternal bodies. And God will breathe our souls into those new bodies. You think of the picture that's laid out for us in the text that Ben read for us in Ezekiel 37, and you start to imagine what this might look like. So life after death is our souls sleeping in God until the second coming. Life after life after death is the inheritance of a new imperishable body, a sign that God once and for all has overcome death and the stranglehold of sin through the forgiveness and grace accomplished by God in Christ's resurrection and ascension. So that's what Christians have historically believed for 2,000 years or so. With all that said, I want to turn back to the promises of transhumanism. Because transhumanists actually envision a world where physical, bodily imperishability is actually attainable. And they strive for it, seeking to enhance technologies that may one day indeed overcome death itself. And what's interesting to me is that both the transhumanists and the Orthodox Christian envision a future where physical bodily death becomes ancient history. It's a future that we articulate in Revelation 21.4, see the home of God is among mortals. God will dwell with them. They will be God's people and God will be with them and be their God. The Lord will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more for the first things have passed away. It's interesting to observe how both Orthodox Christians and transhumanists envision the future with a deep sense of hope, that the future is not something to be afraid of. It's something to be hoped for. Because for the Christian, the future holds the promise of bodily resurrection, a divine gift that bestows a new, imperishable, unfailing body that's impervious to pain, suffering, and death. And similarly, for the transhumanist, the future involves the attainment of an imperishable, unfailing body through technology and science, also rendering it immune to suffering, pain, and death. Which leads us to the big idea that I'm trying to communicate this morning. Christians have been clear over the millennium that it's only God that can usher in the future. It's only God that can usher in the kingdom of God. It's not going to happen through human efforts, but it nonetheless in our time raises the question whether God may in fact be working in and through human ingenuity, human innovation. Is God active in working through advancements in technology to realize God's future? Some of you know this part of my story. 14 years ago, I was diagnosed with, with kidney cancer. And during that time, our church community, the one that we were serving at the time, uh, provided unwavering support, prayers, and love to my family and me. My wife, Katie, displayed incredible rather strength, and God's grace freely flowed through her as she cared for me both pre- and post-surgery. As the day of, of my surgery approached to remove a softball-sized carcinoma from my right kidney, I had all the confidence in the world that I was in good hands with my family, friends, 
and medical team, which is to say that I knew I was in God's good hands. Deep within me, I sensed that God was working through those human hands and through those human hearts and through those human minds. Perhaps you have had an experience like that where you sense the presence of God through your loved ones or through your surgeon or through nurses and technicians and even perhaps the technology that would be utilized to bring healing to your body the way the technology was used to eliminate this carcinoma from mine. It's highly likely, it's highly likely that most of you, if not every single one of us, would not have theological objections with my belief in God's active presence, working through technological advancements, working through human skill, working through innovation to bring healing to my body. Which brings us to a complex question. If it's true that God works through medical professionals, and if it's true that God works through technological advancements to, let's say, eradicate cancer or enhance the quality of life through therapies, rather, like deep brain stimulation for Parkinson's, or to facilitate the treatment of mental illness through pharmacological and cognitive approaches, then why wouldn't it also be true that God is actively present in our pursuit to permanently eliminate all diseases, including cancer and mental illness? you go a little bit further and extend this line of thinking and we begin to consider that, that if God is actively present in these innovations, if God is actively present in these technologies, is God present in the pursuit of immortality? Is God present in the pursuit to reverse aging? Is it possible, is it possible that the visions presented in Ezekiel 37 or Revelation 21, glimpses of God's future filled with hope might be realized, is it possible, might be realized by God through human technological advancements? Is it possible that God is prompting and inspiring these advancements that we utilize each and every day? As we approach the finish line of this sermon, I do want us to recall those profound experiences that have revealed God's presence in our lives. Ones that, like the one I just described, going through my cancer journey. I wanted you to think about the ways in which you've also looked at technology, perhaps as a gift, perhaps as a, as a way to experience a deeper quality or quantity of life, a medication, a procedure that you believe deep down inside that God was actively using to bring healing and wholeness into your life. You think about the remarkable device that transformed my friend's life or the medical care that rid my body of cancer. We cannot disregard the, the tangible impact of technological breakthroughs and innovative therapies that in some ways do indeed help us fulfill the second great commandment. They help us to love our neighbor in a better way, to love our neighbor as ourselves. Some may argue that these achievements are solely the result of human endeavors, but I would suggest to the church that we need to be open to the possibility that God is actually moving and acting in and through human ingenuity and human innovation. 
that we need to leave room for the possibility that these technological advancements may in fact be part of God's plan for God's good future. When every tear will be wiped away, where death will be eradicated. And so I hope as a church, we won't be hesitant to engage in these conversations. We have the scriptures, we have the gospel, we have 2,000 years of tradition thinking about these very issues. We are ready and prepared to have these conversations, to think theologically about these challenges and these issues that are before us. Above all, we do not have to be afraid because we believe and confess that the future belongs to a good and gracious God. And that God is with us and for us in this age and every age. Amen.